don't touch that dial. You are now tuned in to Pruner TV, brought to you by Adobe Radio, in partnership with Nice Guy Digital. Without further ado, here's the guy who played a nerd on TV way too much in the 90s. Your host, Aaron Pruner. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Pruner TV. Uh, you know, honestly, John Oliver sounds way better when he does it. That's right. I stole John Oliver's bit from last week tonight. Stole his bit. Hey, it's Aaron Pruner. I'm back. It's, this is episode number 13 of Pruner TV. Thank you for not changing the channel as I yell at you and welcome you to my show. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Printer TV if you feel so inclined to do so. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything interesting on there for you to watch or 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 take in or or consume, but you can do it. I can guarantee you there's a lot of cool stuff at Aaron Flux on Twitter. That's me. Um, if you want to, you know, follow today's guest is Emmy-winning news producer Tim Ortman. He worked in, uh, I believe, at NBC News during the 70s and 80s and 90s. And we are going to talk a lot about the news. He has a new book, a new memoir coming out called Newsreel. That's N-E-W-S-R-E-A-L, A View Through the Lens When. That's the name of his book. It's coming out, I believe, in May. <laughs> Get ready because we're going to talk a lot about news and current events and fake news and all of that fun stuff, kids. Um, but before we do that, I just wanted to say hi to Maddie. I know uh, she's busy writing things, but hello, Maddie. Good morning. Good morning, Aaron. Thank you for joining me in on this train ride into oblivion. <laughs> no problem. How are you? I'm I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm all right. I'm, yeah. I'm all right. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Okay. <laughs> um, so a few pieces of news that I figured we should discuss before um, my lengthy talk with Tim. The royal wedding was over the weekend, and I don't know if any of y'all watched it. My wife is a huge fan of the British royal family and all that stuff. She, like, flipped out when Kate, Kate, Princess Kate, 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 I want to say Kate McKinnon, but that is not the name of the of the princess. It's Kate Middleton. Middleton. I was going to say Kate Walsh, but I don't know. Okay, so Kate Middleton. So, okay. Uh, Meghan Markle, who star of TV's Suits, uh, a USA show, got married to Prince Harry? Prince Harry. Harry Styles. Prince Harry Styles. Um, over the weekend, and 22.4 million U.S. viewers tuned in. Only 18 million viewed it in the U.K. I watched Cord and Tish on HBO. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, that's Will Ferrell and Molly Shannon playing uh, their version of Bob Eubanks and Stephanie Merriweather. And they they first did this for the Rose Parade on New Year's Day on Amazon, which was brilliant and they've reprised their roles on hbo and what was really funny is that they had no access to the wedding so it was just them talking about the royal wedding outside on a platform that was set up by hbo in london but they couldn't actually get into the ceremony so uh it was all about them talking about 
it was pretty funny. I I mean, I, I liked it. It was an hour and a half. Eventually, um, the the wedding ceremony was over, and they went for a ride around on the horses and all that. I sound like such an out-of-touch American. They went a ride on the horses. and um, But, yeah, apparently this is a big deal. My wife was really upset that Meghan Markle's dress was not better or as good as Kate Middleton's dress. And she asked me my opinion, and I'm like, look, all I remember it was it was white. I don't – it was a white dress, a gown, I guess. I don't know. It was cool. Yeah, good for them. Congratulations to Meghan and Harry. The U.S. and the U.K. are coming together. Um, This is interesting. Fox is close to a massive five-year, $1 billion deal with WWE to buy WWE SmackDown from NBC Universal. So currently uh, – NBC Universal USA, which is owned by NBC Universal, airs WWE Raw and WWE SmackDown. And if this deal goes through, it will split the WWE programming rights with NBC, which is uh, the network's expected to keep Raw with SmackDown moving over to Fox. And Fox is still in the process of being purchased by Disney and will become what a lot of industry people are calling new Fox. And Fox just made a huge deal with the NFL to have Thursday night football, which is the reason why they canceled Brooklyn Nine-Nine and The Mick and Last Man on Earth, like all these other shows. So it's sounding to me like Fox is just going to be doubling down on sports entertainment. And I, 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 I mean, go where the money is. But I can't, I can't. I can't picture how this is going to work. I don't know if it's going to be on Fox or an affiliate of Fox or FX, but who knows? I mean, right now, WWE just, like, owns the week on USA. This might be a good thing for Fox. Who knows? Also, President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama have officially signed a multi-year agreement with Netflix, which I have read online has has driven certain people of political leanings to boycott Netflix. But uh, they got a multi-year agreement to produce films and series with the streaming giant. Um, it says here on The Hollywood Reporter that the pair will produce a diverse mix of content, including the potential for scripted series, unscripted series, docu-series, documentaries, and features under their Higher Ground Productions banner. And they also have a deal in place separately with Penguin Random House to produce individual books at $65 million. So they're doing fine. <laughs> this, uh, Yeah. I, I mean, I don't remember there being a president that has left office and then made such lucrative deals at all honestly i mean i'm sure donald trump will do something along those lines when he leaves office because before he even became president he was going to start his own news channel i don't know if you remember trump tv that he was trying to get off the ground i don't know i don't know i feel like i feel like you don't need to be a republican or a, or a democrat to enjoy whatever content they're going to put out there because at the end of the day they're interested in human stories so keep an open mind i guess here's something i will not keep an open mind about 13 reasons why is back 
I don't know if you've seen season two, Maddie. I've watched the first two episodes, and aside from the fact that it's un it's an unnecessary story. It's a completely unnecessary story. Season one wrapped all it, it all up, and season two now, I'm sorry, spoiler, if you haven't watched it, this is a spoiler. I'm about to say a spoiler. Hannah, the girl that committed suicide in season one, shows up like fucking Tyler Durden now in season two as like a hallucination that is following the main character around. So cool on that actress for continuing to work, but also what are you doing? Um, also flip side, uh, I'm going to pose a question here. Maddie, you can answer me if you, if you want, what's worse teen suicide or school shooting? Come on, you gotta pick. What's worse? Ouch. Yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Because season two really just explores the concept of a thwarted school shooting. And the season premiered roughly around the time of the school shooting that happened in Texas. Mind you, we're at a place now in America where, like, timing, I mean. There's just like a school shooting every fucking week now, and I don't know. I don't know. All I know is this. I'm watching 13 Reasons Why, and it is driving me to want to commit some sort of damaging act because it makes high school look so bleak and awful. And I remember high school being a nightmare, but there were good parts to it. If you're a depressed kid or... What's the term? Incel? That's the new term, incel. If you're, a, if you're jaded or angry at the world and you are of a certain age that might be around high school age and then you're, turning in, you're tuning into 13 Reasons Why and you're seeing these acts that you fantasized about actually happen, happening, much like either a teen suicide or a shooting, what's going to say that you're not going to do the same thing? That, this is what I said about season one about the teen suicide issue that I really – have a problem with, uh, but I tuning into season two, they they started it with these trigger warnings of the cast introducing themselves, saying if if you these are these are this is rough imagery, and if if you have a hard time with this, call a suicide hotline or whatever. Maybe I should have done that season one, but they didn't want to do a trigger warning in season one. I'm I'm look, I'm not asking you to choose between teen suicide or a mass shooting because they're both awful, but the fact that Season two is back, and now it's exploring that topic right now feels like it's important, but also you're doing it for the buzz and the ratings. And it just feels it also just feels pointless to me because the story, I mean, it wrapped itself up. I don't know. But the final thing I want to talk about before we go to a break, um, it seems like a lot of shows are getting canceled. <laughs> Uh, I said this last week, Fox has killed so many shows and more and more people are talking. I, I've seen on social media about my favorite show got canceled. Why do the networks keep doing this? And I feel like the networks keep doing this because there's too much TV. When you think about shows like Seinfeld or Cheers or MASH or whatever, they got you know, awards and accolades and a lot of viewers because at the time there wasn't as much TV as there is now. And especially on network, network television relies on advertising dollars. 
But those advertising dollars rely on viewership and ratings. And when you have places like Netflix and Hulu and HBO and all these premium channels and all this television that's available that wasn't available 20 years ago, it makes it a cluttered landscape and people are more so torn as to what to watch. Like, I'm there. I don't know what to watch. I know what I'd like to watch and I know what I have the time to watch and I know what I have the priority like, I have to prioritize what I'm watching, but this is the reason why The Exorcist was canceled. It was a, you know, lauded show. Everyone loved it. It was cr- a critical darling, but no one was tuning in to watch it because, A, it was on a Friday night. B, Fox didn't really advertise it well. C, people just have too much to do. And by the time you see it on Netflix or Hulu, it's too damn late. So if you're complaining that your favorite show has been canceled realize that I feel like this bubble of too much TV is deflating because this past year, every year when networks order new shows, it seems that 2013 was the, 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 the top, the peak, the peak of this bubble that was, that was expanding after breaking bad and mad men happened. And each year after that, it feels like less shows are being ordered except that Netflix that just announced that by the end of the year, they would have had, from right now until the end of the year, they're going to have a thousand new originals, original movies, original series come out. So if you're not Netflix and you're a place like Fox or ABC, you know, you, there's a lot riding on your show to hit in the first year. Because if it does not get those viewers, those ad dollars go away and then it's not profitable for the network. And then your favorite show that you loved, like Lucifer or whatever, Gets canceled, and then Roseanne comes back, and then suddenly all these three-camera sitcoms are a thing again. But that's a whole other topic of conversation. Um, We're going to go on a break right now. When we come back, I'm going to be speaking at length to news producer Tim Ortman. Stick around. Welcome back uh, in the studio with me today. Now, I'm excited about this. Uh, I'm kind of a, a news junkie in the sense that I like to be informed, but I'm not necessarily a big fan of a lot of the news shows out there today. And in the studio with me today is, um, can I say, you're a former news producer, right? Current news producer? Former. I, former uh, Emmy winning that's that's what cameraman the, producer. I would go get donuts, cokes, oh, whatever it would be. That required. is the most important. Yes, the donuts, and I'm assuming the coffee. Mr. Tim Ortman, Tim Ortman is in the studio with me today. And um, first off, how are you? I'm wonderful. It's great to be here. Thanks for ha- thanks for having me. Have you? Um, <laughs> it's great to be had. Uh, so when um, when you, the email came across my desk. Uh, pitching you to talk to me, I was immediately fascinated because there is a lot of change has happened in how we Americans get our news, especially over the last, I don't know, decade and a half to two decades. I'm, I'm decade and a half, shall we say, like the past 15 years. So just for me personally, when, when I really started paying attention was roughly around the time that Jon Stewart and The Daily Show and... Um, the, the popularity of that show started 
um, uh, escalating because before that I didn't really pay attention to the news and suddenly I I was getting it in a different lens and it was really making me feel like oh I'm being informed and I'm actually understanding this and I'm getting the catharsis of, of comedy from this but now we're in this position where things are so cha- so vastly there's so many different outlets so many different um, sources of news there's social media there's um, the 24-hour news landscape. There's blogs and BuzzFeed and all of these things. So when the email came to me, to the opportunity to talk to you, I was like, I am so down. So before we even get into that, I want to get your history. How did you get into the news business? Uh, I was a student of uh, all things television and film production. So I graduated with a with degree in film and television production and uh, right out of um, I worked at a PBS station all through college and the Bowling Green State University so it was easy for me to get a job and right out of college I got a job at um, as a news cameraman for a small station in my hometown of Dayton Ohio uh, and after a year or so I was very hungry and I sent out resumes and tapes and stuff to big markets and most of them came back um, thanks for your interest Nothing at this time. Please lose our address. Don't contact us again. But one in Chicago, the NBC station, uh, took an interest. And I found myself um, a year and a half out of college working at what was then the second largest uh, market in America for uh, uh, the NBC affiliate in Chicago. And uh, it was a wonderful time. I had a gas. I was. This was in the 70s? This was in the uh, early 80s. Early 80s. Okay. I read parts of your book. <laughs> By the way, it's called Newsreel. What is uh, colon? Newsreel, spelled R-E-A-L, uh, A View Through the Lens When. A view through, yes, that is his new book. And uh, I, I, I mentioned that because a lot of what we're going to be talking about here, he touches on in, can we call it a memoir? It is a memoir. It's a memoir uh, of my time as a young NBC News cameraman based overseas. Uh, I was... Uh, promoted and transferred overseas, and uh, I joined the Foreign Press Corps for NBC News, and uh, this was during the 80s, so very tumultuous time for world news gathering. Um, It was a wonderful experience for me, and uh, I developed a real sense of camaraderie with the dedicated men and women who I worked with covering news and felt uh, an immense sense of pride working for NBC News and the much larger broadcast news organization. And in today's climate with so much media bashing, when I went to write the book, I wanted to do more than just a, write a memoir. And so it gave me an opportunity to remind the reader um, in a free society like ours, the news media plays a really important and vital role. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, no. I, I mean, obviously, especially where we're at right now. Um, now, I, I have in my notes here that your experience, you consider it the golden era of broad broadcast news. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? At the time, there were only three 
very powerful global news organization. CNN was just coming on the scene. Right. They came on in the late 80s? They, I think they came on, they went on the air in, in the late 70s, but they, they were just planting flags overseas. Yeah. And, and Fox News was neither fair nor balanced because they weren't conceived at that point in time. Roger Ailes was still in politics. So um, it was three very powerful global news entities with bureaus all over the world. And uh, every major capital, every major city had an, a news bureau. That's where I came in. I was uh, transferred to Frankfurt. And uh, it was so they had incredible reach. And they were because they had bureaus everywhere, they were incredibly agile. They could be anywhere news broke uh, in an hour's notice. And the because the landscape wasn't so fractured like it is today, there were only three networks. The The advertising revenue was much larger. The budgets were much larger. And the... The networks kind of back then viewed the news divisions differently. The profits, the big profits were made from the primetime entertainment shows like Monday Night Football or Charlie's Angels or Cheers or Seinfeld or something. The news division, we had to do budget analysis and projections, but we weren't held to such... Uh, uh, profitability wasn't so demanded. We were allowed to kind of cover news as we saw fit. And we were viewed as kind of a a civic obligation by the ownership, a higher calling. You know, we wasn't necessary that we turn profits because we were doing something other. We were reporting the news. Uh, that That's changed. There is a much more, a lot more focus on profitability, um, and the, a lot of those international bureaus have been closed, and they still do a really good job, the networks, of covering news internationally, but uh, uh, it's different from when uh, the time that I wrote Newsroom. Why do you think that is? That, that, that's an interesting thing you brought up. I recently went um, to, to Budapest uh, for a very quick trip, and it's, it's sort of, I, I wouldn't say mind-blowing, but to see the news that you get overseas, and whether it's BBC or Al Jazeera or different, um, different media outlets that are actually just reporting the info without ego or opinion, <laughs> and then it seems like everything out here is so based in whatever echo chamber your, your beliefs exist in. Uh, well, certainly you mentioned the BBC. They were and still are the gold standard in terms of world news gathering. I also contend that there's a lot of really good award-winning fact-based journalism being practiced by American networks. Yes. But that landscape has become uh, fractured and noisy, and there's a lot more uh, people that have entered that so-called news landscape. And, and then when you add the online options... Uh, it gets really crowded. But uh, I think when you have so many competing entities for the same or diminished viewer segment, it becomes the profitability is more focused and, and people want to make sure that there is an ROI. And, the, and let's not forget these are a lot of these are publicly traded companies. So they have a, a responsibility to their shareholders to make to return a profit. But uh, when I was doing it overseas, um, for NBC News, we really didn't feel that kind of 
that kind of stress, that kind of uh, focus. Because your focus was more on there telling the story free, and reporting yeah, the info. We were we were given a lot more free range to just uh, cover news. And, yeah, and and that was determined by news dedicated lifelong news men and women, not consultants or or somebody who was uh, you know looking at it like a popularity contest. Right, right. I mean, there were people like what Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow and people who were there to you know not not. Not be a celebrity. Well, that was, I mean, at that time, the anchormen were more trusted than presidents. Right. And, and you know, the, the, what they, and, and for good reason. They were just giving the straight story. And people, you know, twice as many loyal viewers sat in and tuned in every evening to the anchormen and, 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 and would get their news through that 630 broadcast. And that's, you know, they trusted it. And they were... It was a relationship where they knew what they were getting was truthful and fact-based. And again, that's that relationship still exists today, but it's been um, chipped away because of so many different people, so many different companies competing, you know, so-called delivering the news. Right, right. And there are, there are. I'm not going to say. I mean, it maybe conglomerates the right word, but there are there are certain entities out there that want to control as much media as possible. Um, right. Which would then, I mean, the news would be a part of that. Information would be a part of that. I'll get into that more in a, in a minute. But I sure. wanted to dial back for a second. Um, you've had, you have a lot of experience reporting the news, uh, especially overseas, like you mentioned in in the eighties when I was a kid. You know, Cold War time. Um, are are there any are there any moments or events that you've reported on that stand out as like? I am proud of that. What I did, the work I did on that uh, specific, whether I, I, I don't, I can't think of a an example off the top of my head. But do you, do you see what I'm saying? Like there were certain what absolutely, the, yeah. There was we had we. I was fortunate to be part of a, a team that we were always covering um, news, international news, and much of it was very significant, almost historic. And for me, it started with the uh, war in Lebanon and concluded with uh, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. So within that range, there were a lot of really interesting stories that I got to be a part of. And I get asked often if I have a favorite story, and I don't have a favorite story. What I do have is a most unforgettable story, and that was, um, you mentioned the BBC. The BBC broke a story about um, a horrible famine spreading throughout uh, parts of uh, Ethiopian Chad. And uh, within an hour's notice, we were mobilized and packed up, and we were the first American network to get into Ethiopia. Just getting into Ethiopia was a challenge. Uh, so we made our way to Addis Ababa, and then we had to make our way to this really remote, uh, famine-stricken area, which was uh, another hurdle. And and then they didn't have satellite facilities in Ethiopia, it was so backward and so poor. We had to uh, comprise a means of finding satellite facilities in the neighboring um, Kenya to get the material out so that we could cut a story and broadcast it, get it back to New York and broadcast to the world. So it was a very complicated scenario to get in there and report on this, what the BBC had broken as a this terrible famine. And we got all that done. We made uh, arrangements to not only get up and shoot, but also get the story edited down in uh, Nairobi. And when the correspondent, myself, my sound man, made our way up to uh, this stricken area in, of the Sahara, it was we were ill-prepared completely for what we were 
what we had seen. So our bush pilot flies us up there. We go, we come over a little ridge in a truck that the, the aid workers had put together for us. And what we saw was this just horrible, I, I say refugee camp, but it wasn't a camp. There were just these these uh, survivors trying, that had crawled for days, weeks through the desert uh, in the hopes of getting some water or grain. The sick and the dying were everywhere. Jesus. There were very few tents. I mean, the, what, what little the aid workers had, they were handling out. But this was right as this was being reported, so nothing had, had been delivered. And these poor people, I mean, they were dying of, you know, of uh, starvation and dehydration and disease, and the mothers couldn't pre- couldn't pr- uh, make uh, produce breast milk, so these infants were dying in their arms, and it was everywhere. It stretched for you know five football fields, and uh, that was just one camp. Uh, so this was like a biblical proportion. So we, um, you know, th- those. <laughs> The faces of those poor stricken people, I mean, haunt you today. But um, we did get the pictures out. We did put the stories together, and we did broadcast them to the world. And it made a difference. There was, um, you know, Reagan and the, the Congress quickly earmarked $400 million that went to, to African aid. And uh, the, the live aid concerts from uh, Wembley Stadium in Philadelphia produced another, I think, $50 million in immediate critical aid. So I, I think there were reports that there were upwards of a million people that perished from that famine. But being a part of the news team that got that out uh, really did um, make me proud of being a part of that, that news media that uh, yeah. can really can make a change and make a difference, and so oftentimes does. I mean, I, I remember that when I was a kid. I, I remember the good and the bad because, you know, you're in school and kids like to make bad jokes and i heard a lot of ethiopia jokes yeah there were yeah it was well if you were if you were seeing it from my perspective through a camera lens there was nothing humorous right. about it so so that's what i wanted to to ask about that um how how do you stay focused like when when you're surrounded by something like that that has to overtake you emotionally um how how do you stay focused on the story that you're telling the men and women that do this job do it not because they want the adulation or the awards. They do it because they're into journalism. They're into getting the story out. And we were no exception. And, and it is really riveting when you're involved in a story like that. Uh, those images are haunting, but you do really want to get the word out. You, you realize you're entrusted with a pretty significant responsibility to do so. so. Right, right. Um, okay, so you're a, you were a news producer and a cameraman. I started out as a news cameraman, loved it, loved the photojournalism aspect, loved the storytelling. But um, when I came back to the United States after seven years abroad, uh, I wanted to get into more um, storytelling. Yeah. I, I wanted to follow the process through after the videotape had been ejected from the camera and went into the edit room where the magic was created and the scripts were written. So... Uh, I really enjoyed the shooting aspect of it, the lighting, but um, I began to do more uh, producing and writing and editing, story editing. So explain what a news producer does, because I've been in a newsroom before, but there, I'm assuming the, the, the machine is different now than it once was. 
Um, You're a good analogy. It is a big machine. And it takes, right. There's a lot of uh, interchangeable um, cogs you know, that, yeah, yeah, that, that right. all work together. Um, but... <clears throat> Producing, I mean, you can do, you can be show producing where you're putting together the various elements that comprise that show, or you can do um, field producing, story producing. And that which, was what you did? Yeah. Yeah. So we okay. Would, uh, I would go out and, and work with a crew, and we would gather the elements required, and then I would come back and assemble, uh, oftentimes write the script, and then follow it through into the edit room with an editor and put the, the pictures and sound together with the, the words that we had written and and produce a, a story, whether it was a, a three-minute story or a 30-minute documentary, whatever it was. So. Right. Cool. Um, so I asked you if there was any proud moments in your career. Are there any stories that you felt could that you've covered or that happened during your tenure, so to speak, that uh, you feel like you would want to go back and, and do something different, do something different in reporting the story or... Or wish that you covered something that 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 ended up being broken by by another media outlet or channel. Uh, do something differently. Uh, the, the first real story I covered was um, the war in Lebanon, and I was really young, and I. It was on the cover of Time and Newsweek all the time. And and as a new 25-year-old cameraman working with much older, more experienced um, colleagues, I was in a hurry to get up to speed, and, and they had incredible resumes going back to Vietnam or the fall of Iran or whatever it was. And I had come from Chicago, so um, I wanted to beef up my resume, and I wanted to go to uh, to Lebanon, which was the number one headline story. And... Uh, I think early on I had a really simplistic understanding of that story and it you know there was no real good or bad there was a lot of there were a lot of shades of gray there were 80 different militias fighting for the same turf you know a really small little place and um so it was a really complicated story eventually I I got a better understanding of it um and and thanks in part to a lot of the dedicated colleagues that I worked with, they kind of um, showed me the ropes and I understand, understood it. But uh, uh, I was a bit naive going into Beirut. And it was a really dangerous place. It was, a, yeah. it was a war in the middle of a metropolitan city. It was crazy. And, and there were battle scars everywhere and tanks and militias on every corner. And uh, But it, it was why I was wide-eyed as a, a young cameraman. So, um, and eventually, I, I did understand it, um, but I think going in there, I was a little naive, and 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 I was kept safe by a lot of people who um, who had my best interest at all. Yeah, well, cool. But in terms of, I don't know. Uh, I mean, not cool, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> no. As a twenty-five-year-old, it was really cool to go into Beirut and uh, and be a part of that story. But it was also very dangerous. And at right. the time, I don't think I realized how dangerous, how life-threatening it was I mean, until it, it confronted I'm assuming you. there's there's kind of like an adrenaline factor to it as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And as I mentioned, a lot of those, uh, my colleagues had come from Vietnam. So that was, Vietnam had, had, had you know, ceased to be a story uh, once the American army pulled out. And so there was a civil war raging in, in, in Lebanon. And that was... Uh, the next stop for a lot of them. And so there was that adrenaline. Um, but it was also, uh, 
covering interesting world events you know this was real stuff it wasn't made up and um and and it was a world story so people naturally wanted to progress from one international story to another and that just happened to be lebanon um i'm going to shift the conversation to present day now sure <laughs> yes um well, we can only look back so long yeah you're right there's a lot going on uh yeah today you know um a couple years ago i worked at a website called zap to it and um i i did entertainment tv reporting hence why this is a podcast called pruner tv because that's my name and tv's my game um catchy title i like it <laughs> thank you uh I worked for a company called Zap to It, which was owned by Tribune Media. Tribune Media from Chicago. Correct. Uh, owned WG in America. They owned KTLA in LA here. Uh, a lot of affiliates. And a little bit over a year ago, a company called Sinclair Broadcast Group came in, purchased my parent company, and I got laid off and was told to get out the building in the next 48 hours. And within that time, I learned a lot about Sinclair Broadcast Group, which has since um, been talked about on multiple occasions on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and uh, their their propaganda practices in I, – I don't remember the exact title of what it's called, but they own like – all sorts of news affiliates across the country. In a lot of large markets, correct. Very and, influential uh, broadcasting. Right. And they send out scripts that tend to, like we mentioned earlier, tend to push an opinion. Um, not necessarily news, more so like Fox News style propaganda that all over the country different um, anchor people are forced to read the script of something pro-Trump or anti-this or pro-this. And I'm curious, did that exist when when you were working in in news where where a, a company would come in and say, you have to read this script at this specific time? No, I think what you're referring to, Sinclair is, uh, is referred to as must-reads. It's a mandate that comes down from ownership, and you will read this. And no, it wasn't, certainly not at the network level, was there any kind of... Uh, editorializing going on. I mean, if you wanted an editorial or an opinion, you could turn to the New York Times, and it was identified in the intersection of the paper, editorial and opinion. But And local stations would oftentimes end their newscast with, but it would be identified. The general manager or the news director would come on and say, this is an opinion or an editorial, and they would read it. But it was clearly identified. Now those lines are so blurred, but that's never happening at a network, at NBC News. You're not going to sit down and watch Lester Holt, NBC Nightly News, and have some kind of opinion or editorial. Right. Once you get away from that mainstream bedrock news media that I worked for, was so proud to work for, people, then I think you start to see liberties taking uh, nowadays. But when I was, during the time that I wrote the book at Newsreel, uh, no, that was not at all. And and Walter Cronkite was famous. I mean, he would say that, uh, you know, objective journalism and an opinion column are about as similar as the Bible and Playboy magazine. So, <laughs> that's that's so, a good one. I uh, mean, there was a huge <laughs> distinction. Nobody wanted to con confuse the two. Right. And uh, so... No, that's one of the reasons I, I contend that it was uh, the golden era. There wasn't yeah. any opinion. I, it wasn't any opining 
or editorializing on the news broadcast. There was a place for it. Do you think that that is so rampant on news now because of a I mean, I I look at the 24 hour news cycle, social media and this sort of nationalistic direction our country is taking you mentioned you worked overseas for so many years. You know, I found when I travel, it gives you a, a wider perspective of the world. And there are so many people, I mean, obviously, Absolutely. but I feel like there is a view within America that a lot of the people here see the world a specific way, but don't actually go see the world. And I now this could I could be wrong, but my perspective of this is you see this on Facebook, you see this on Twitter, you see this on on like Alex Jones and Fox News and even uh, other other news outlets where we're getting stories, but we're getting stories through like this this lens of this is what's happening in the world, but only through America's perspective because we're not actually going to see it firsthand. No, you're absolutely right. I was very fortunate that I got to go and see it firsthand, and I realize I'm one of the few, but it did shape my view of the world and of course look we we come from los angeles or chicago or dayton ohio and we're ohioans and you know that's our identity but we also and i saw this firsthand we live on a globe we share this place with a lot of other people and of course there are people that want to do us harm there's crazies and as a a news cameraman, I was shot at and beaten only because I was an American with a camera. So I know the hatred that's vented towards us. But, okay, so we want to protect ourselves from those crazies. Beyond that, there's a lot more similarities that we share than differences with all the other people that live on this globe. And it, it helps for us to understand those other people, places, and cultures through news and through understanding right. them. Not through some, you know, edited prism or, you know, somebody telling you what's... But but to to see unbiased, true reporting from around the world, it does help, I think, shrink the globe and get out from our own local communities and, and kind of understand uh, the bigger picture being the world on w- in which we live. Right. And, and speaking of those local communities, I feel and, – and I, I mentioned this earlier – and I have a feeling I know your take on on news uh, that people get on Facebook and Twitter. Um, there is this growing trend. It's already pretty big of people getting their info on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram or whatever, where the news they're getting reinforces their own political or socioeconomic or whatever perspective of the world or belief system, where it's not necessarily telling you the news. It's telling you the news you want to hear. Right. Um, how do we fix that? Or is that something that can be fixed? I, you know, I say that with the Cambridge Analytica stuff that happened. And, um, you know, I, I have in-laws who believe certain things. Let's just say they don't line up with my beliefs, but they believe certain things because they saw it on Facebook. Right, which is, makes for an interesting Thanksgiving dinner, doesn't it? You know, when- I'm the only Jew at that family <laughs> dinner. Trust me, it does make for some... We join hands and thank Jesus before the meal. Three nice. days before I got married, they tried to convert me, and that was a whole other story. Anyways, uh, all true, but but you know, uh, my my father in law has expressed certain pro Trump, anti immigrant 
anti certain people of color mentalities to me. And I'm like, how, how, how is this a thing? And then I start learning that, well, I learned this on Facebook and Twitter, but you're learning it within your own echo chamber slash bubble where it's. Well, that's where I sometimes I rile at the thought where people term Facebook and Twitter as news sources. They're not. They, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg didn't sit in his dorm room in Harvard and decide he was going to make a journalistic uh, news source. It was a social sharing thing, right? And, and the journalistic component or the news component just kind of fell in their laps. So, and and clearly they were ill prepared for it. Thus, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and and now they're they've come out and they a little too late, but they're now going to rate and identify news sources. But they're just they're not reporting anything. They're regurgitating something they that was reported from the AP or the New York Times or NBC News or even you know Fox News. They're, they're just regurgitating this stuff, and it's not being delivered. By any kind of journalistic delivery, it's being delivered by oftentimes trolls or bots, or it, it's being sent out through an algorithm, you know, and being like where you mentioned, they're just being fed a steady diet of more similar uh, stories that aren't necessarily factually based. So I would caution people not to look at those online sort of. Uh, platforms as news sources. Go get your news from the original source, the people who are winning awards for journalistic uh, excellence. That's where a news source, that's what a news source is, not a social platform that regurgitates news from other sources. So that leads me to a question then, because I've had this conversation with my mother who always asks me if I watch the news and I don't watch like the nightly news. Or Shame any, on you. We've got to fix that. I don't have cable. Sorry. <laughs> um, but no, but I do get a lot of my news on the Internet. And then I find that, mind you, there are Internet sources like ABC News, NBC News of or, or Vice. Or, Huffington, but there's all kinds of legit online. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. I, I guess my question, though, is. I, I, it's a two-parter. Um, is because uh, because more and more I know, especially a lot of the people listening to the show probably get their news and information online on social media. More and more, sure. especially young people, more and more are cutting cable or or doing that. Um, where's the balance, or is there a balance that you could find, or is it even worth finding a balance between getting social media uh, information, news stuff, and still? And still, I guess, subscribing to the big dogs, the, 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 the outlets like an NBC or CNN or MSNBC. And I ask that because working in a newsroom, it gets it, it got to be too much for me where there were TVs all over the screen, all over the, the wall. And each one was a different channel. And when you're on a 24 hour news cycle, it's like they're regurgitating the same shit over and over again where you know at at a time it gets to a point where you want to turn it off and block that out and get down to the meat of what you need to know yeah so you're the first part is um i think look we are the most powerful nation on earth we owe it to ourselves to be the most well-informed nation on earth okay we can't <laughs> yeah. just be i mean we're misusing that power for just a nation of ill um, misinformed or uninformed uh, fools so if you have to get your news from an online source or, or you know social media fine but we need to be informed and 
the, as the network news ratings declined, you know, I wondered where are these, where are the viewers going? Yeah. If they're going to get informed online, fine. If they're, but if they're not going to get informed, if they're just picking up and, you know, going to uh, Snapchat or, or, or some social platform where there's no news or, or worse, they're picking up the game console, then, then we're really missing an opportunity. We need to stay informed and we need to get, uh, you know, hopefully unbiased factually based news wherever you get that from i don't want to be the arbiter of where you no, go no, to no, get no. news sure. but we we do need to be um keep up with current events not just domestically but globally yeah talk to me about the fourth estate there is a new docu series called the fourth estate coming to showtime that is um they they give a, like an unfettered inside look into the New York Times during the 2016 presidential election and soon after, you know, the failing New York Times. Um, <laughs> yes. <It> was, <laughs> now on record subscription rates and yes. Yeah. Uh, so can you define what the fourth estate is sure. and why it's important? So the fourth estate, it's um, it was named the fourth estate because it's it reports on the other three um, chambers of government, the uh, executive, the judicial, and legislative. So the news media reports on those three chambers of government. And uh, it, that's an important role, one that's been with us for a long time, long before Donald Trump came on, you know, centuries ago, back almost before, you know, to where our founding fathers were. And that's where, you know, the news media uh, is expected to protect the public interest and guard against things like incompetence or um, misinformation and it's not just with government it's it's with big business as well but it's responsible for keeping these huge powerful institutions more transparent and accountable to the people to us so that's where the fourth estate comes from and that watchdog journalism is a really key component and i know that president trump riles against some of the the, the the coverage he receives and it fake news yeah exact well i've got a whole take <laughs> on that but uh yeah so but you know he's not the only one it's he's the president of the united states pretty powerful position it's the role of the news media is to report on the president one of the roles of the news media is to report on the president of the united states and you know it, it, you can go back to thomas jefferson he didn't like some of the coverage he was getting and complained about it. And almost every president has always complained about some of the coverage they've gotten. But at the end of the day, they all realize that a free and uncensored press is a cornerstone of our democracy. And, you know, I like to quote George W. Bush. He was a popular two-term president, but wasn't always bathed in the most flattering light by the, the news media. And, you know, upon leaving office, you know, he said power can be very addictive. It can be corrosive, and it's important for the media to hold account the people who abuse their power. So, you know, that's from a, a former two-term president. So they all get it, and I hope President Trump understands that these people are just doing their job. But we're in a dangerous position if we're going to be calling reputable uh, news organizations fake news. Yeah, I don't – so fake news is a <laughs> – you mentioned John Stewart. They st they you they created that term um, as a, a a parody, yeah, you know, as a, a humorous thing, and and then it was applied later on. 
I think it's used too often as a uh, a smoke screen, a smoke screen, uh, a diversionary tactic to label a story that at its core is fact-based, but maybe not that flattering or complimentary. So you throw on the label fake news and attempt to move the the attention of the reader or the listener or the the um, the audience onto a different topic and move it on to something else that perhaps is more flattering. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean that story isn't truthful. You know, truth can be a, a really bitter pill to swallow, but it doesn't mean that it's fake. It just means that it can be distasteful Yeah, for some. Yeah, but it's just unfortunate because now it's like more, more and more people believe that fake news is a thing. More and more people are beginning to question what news is worth listening to, which then takes them back to that quote-unquote social media echo chamber that they're living within where they get their yeah. news that, that re fills their perspective of the world and doesn't challenge their view. Well, when I hear fake news applied to a story, my antenna go up. That means I just now I want to know more about that story and not less. I want to know more about that story because something there is making somebody uncomfortable. Yeah. I want to know what it is. And oftentimes it's the truth. It's the facts. So, Right. Wow. Well, if you want to know more about Tim Ortman's story, see what I did? It was a, that was a, that's a pivot. No, I, I that's pivoted. A, I, it was a, I think that was, I'm pretty proud of that pivot. Um, when is your book coming out? Uh, the book is available to pre-order online through amazon.com. Uh, but uh, um, my publisher tells me that May 30th, it will be available uh, and hardcover uh, to purchase, and then Barnes and Noble uh, as well, and um, we will get it into bookstores as also. And that's Newsreel R E A L of you through the lens when exactly, which I'm fascinated. Like I, I could talk to you way more about all this stuff, but we are running out of time. Well, um, I'm a news, like you said, I, uh, you're a news junkie. I am a, a self-confessed news junkie, so this is stuff that I. It's near and dear to my heart, and I enjoy talking about Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Um, ladies and gentlemen, that is the end of our show. If you enjoyed what you hear, please be sure to like and review us on iTunes. You can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pruner TV. I'm Aaron Pruner. You can follow me on all the social media channels at Aaron Flux. Are you on social media, Mr. Tim Ortman? At Tim Ortman Writer at... Um facebook and twitter awesome well you can find him at tim ortman writer at facebook and twitter i hope you enjoyed this episode and it was as informative to you as it was for me thank you all for listening avoid the fake news and be good to each other